Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everybody, um, today we'd agreed, we'd pre-arranged that we were going to follow up the, the column I wrote about Spain's Copa del Rey after the really <laughs> uplifting, extraordinary week of football that that competition has provided us, particularly watching Sol de Villa score a hat-trick against his ex-club Barcelona as a tiny little club from Alicante, Intercity, who only existed since 2017 took Barca to extra time in a 3-3 draw and then conceded the, the knockout goal to Ansu Fati and chatting to my producers, Neil and Martin, we thought, well, maybe a short follow-up just to say, hey, look, La Liga teams eliminated by Minos, one-third division team through to the draw on Saturday. Solde makes a brilliant story because his goals were fantastic. The intercity Barca game was magic and then, pow, Friday morning, Kings in Spain. It's the equivalent of Christmas Day in um, most of the rest of Europe in, in many parts of the world. Dia de los Reyes is, is vitally important. And it happens to be today that I'm going back to the studios of La Liga Television for the first time since um, Simon Hanley died. And his thoughts, his words, his music have been echoing around my head for days. And I've been speaking with my great, great friend Duncan McMath about how to have a little tribute night for Simon next week. And it's with some trepidation that I'm thinking about being in those studios, those corridors, those offices again for the first time in the knowledge that I won't bump into Simon or hear his <laughs> sarcastic comments or uplifting laughter, his cynicism, his wit. And so it's with a really heavy heart that I admit that I'm recording this today about the, the death of Gianluca Vialli. I, uh, I knew him pretty well, but above all, I, I want to testify to the fact that he was an extraordinary presence, somebody who, since way back in 1995, did very generous things for me. And I must admit, because this feels like a private conversation between friends, sometimes I think, I can't believe these people are there listening and contributing and, and chatting and sending questions and and therefore it's not that I feel an obligation to you but equally I think to myself I often think in this year where um, I've lost my mom one of my very best friends another my, be my best friend of my life suffered a stroke and then Simon died in December it's it's it exacerbates the question in your head about what do we do when people die and why do we do it and it's a doubly strong question in my head about when 
ordinary paisano, ordinary people, ordinary workaday pavement people like me, grieve in public or admit to a feeling of loss or sadness about somebody special and famous like Luca Vialli. Because there's very obviously now a, an association with celebrity that, that passes when some people talk about a famous person who's died and then there's a separation to people who, who genuinely feel sore or sad or touched or moved, never having met that person. And then there's the the tightest group of people that knew them really well or loved them. And I don't know quite where I fit or why I, I'm doing this, but I want to admit to begin with that before I speak about him, I feel really emotional and, and heavy hearted because... and and. This is what I want to share with you, just in case it helps or it's interesting, because I've I felt touched by a really special guy, and it it also it also felt so coincidental, and and hard to believe, hard to compute, because it it was in um, that crazy year of nineteen ninety five for me when, first of all, and now departed editor of mine, Brian Cooney, on hearing my argument that there was a desperately interesting human story in the case of Jean-Marc Bosman, sent me over to to Liège and eventually to Bosman's parents' flat, where I interviewed him on the day that the verdict came through that he had won his case and that players at the end of their contract would be able to move freely. That was a landmark moment in my life. It was an interesting ultra human experience because it was somebody talking about a fact that would alter football a fact which coincidentally altered my journalistic profile but fundamentally it was Bosman talking about something that had pretty much ruined had certainly ruined the latter years of his career and in my opinion went a long way to to tainting his life and and in beginning a, a a battle with alcoholism, um, and I mentioned that because it was just a couple of months later that my editor, the same editor, said, "I I don't like the way that Juventus just brushed strangers aside. Football wise, it's okay, but in a Champions League match like that in Glasgow, how is it that an Italian team can physically and athletically bully um, Rangers that way?" Come find out. Most of you will know this tale. And therefore I repeat it in an effort to shed light on this friendship with Luca Vialli. But I pitched up in Turin with the help of Daniele Boalia, who was the press officer at Juventus at the time. And he said, yeah, you can come and study us if you want. And he gave me access to the, to the gym, to the training sessions on the first day I was there. It happened to be two training sessions, one in the morning, one in the early evening and I was given such freedom and at the end of the first day I said I really need to speak to one of your players about this training regime and so much more is known about training now than than certainly in my part it, it, it that than was then because there's greater sharing of ideas there's all the football planning programs there's all the discussion about prioritization there's YouTube videos there are seminars the internet is the great conductor of information. Didn't it? Didn't none of that 
most of it didn't exist in 1995 and none of it was in its heyday. And and so I wanted to speak to a player to say, what does it feel like to, to be asked to train this way? Why doesn't it tire you out to, to train, regularly train twice in a day? What are the disciplines like mental and physical of of this type of regime? And they selected Luca Vialli and they... So this is at the end of his day where they've trained in the morning and and it was on a muddy Comunale pitch. They were playing in Delhi Alpi at the time and training in their old stadium, the Comunale. And and the pitch was very muddy indeed. The the sessions mixed uh, the usual thing of of tactical, strategic games, finishing and, and running, a lot of running, uh, all under the now departed... Gian Pietro Ventroni, who who died late last year as well. Ventroni was at Spurs when he died last um, late autumn. And it was Ventroni's sessions that I was trying to understand. And I got access eventually to him through a translator. Daniele did the translating. But in this instance, they said, listen, Luca Viale will stop and speak to you. Go and wait in that changing room. And he speaks enough English. And there was also... Um, a woman who worked for the club television station who who intervened and, and, and got us through sticky patches in the in the interview. And I've told it before, but it makes me smile so many times. My first meeting with Luca Viali was, was him coming in, evidently tired after two training sessions in a day, into a dingy little uh, dressing room. How much he'd had his arm bent, to, to a phrase he used when he signed for Chelsea. I don't know if I said that to him, did, did they have to twist your arm to come? But he comes in, he's evidently tired, he sits down, he's got his kit back. And he's in a beautiful three-piece pinstripe suit. As I'm, well, I'm in a three-piece pinstripe suit. <laughs> the first thing he does is reach forward to to grip the material. And, and you know, that to rub something between your thumb and your forefinger is, is, a, is a worldwide gesture of testing the quality and he does that for the for my suit and it's tr- transmitted to me via words via gestures and that impish anybody who's met him or seen him in a relaxed mode talking will know what I mean about that impish little smile that that comes from the eyes not the mouth he was full of mischief and he's like yeah Nice look, nice shirt. You need better material. <laughs> so sorry, nineteen ninety five Slaters, it, to put you to put you down via Viali. And the rest of the interview was was tremendous. It was about twenty five minutes, half an hour. It was interesting enough that um, it, it helped me carry several pages of an examination of Juventus when I got back to Scotland to write for the Scottish Daily Mail. It led to at my next press conference at Ibrox, Walter Smith waiting until the end, asking to see me at the back of the room and then getting me by the by the by the throat of my shirt, not by the throat, but lifting me by the, the tie and the collar up against the wall and bawling me out. Walter thought I'd made Juventus and Viali out to be angels and the epitome of professionalism, which in many senses, in some senses, they definitely were. And and Walter wasn't happy. And the fucking mad thing was 
that my explanation of what I was trying to get across, the fact I'd been there and interviewed people once Walter calmed down again, deeply increased our friendship. Walter admitted to me that he he invited me back a couple of weeks later for uh, soup in his office at Ibrox. He admitted that because Luca Viale was represented by a Scottish agent, Athol Still, in Britain he was anyway, that they'd they'd started talks to see if they could get him on freedom of contract at the end of the season. The freedom of contract which Bosman and his legal team had just assured Luca Viale of having. And again, it's a common story of mine that when these stories were published about Juventus, the Celtic manager Tommy Burns phoned me up and said, can you take me over there again now? I want to study them for myself. And I did, so we were back three weeks later. And this time, hello from Luca, but no interview with him because this interview was with Ventroni again and with Lippi and again, two, three days access to the gym and to training and to physios and all that kind of stuff. Whether it helped the late Tommy Burns or not, I don't know, but it was great fun. And by the end of that season, it was... Lippi had talked about Viali's importance in training as a leader, not just as a footballer or a goal scorer. And my memory is, I haven't looked this up, but my memory is that they, they, they beat Real Madrid in the, in the next round that's awaiting them when we, when we talk in, in, first of all, in December and then in January. They beat Real Madrid, I think 2-1, but it's Nantes that provides the the really grisly opponent in getting to the final. The final that Juventus, Viali, less so, but Viali and Lippi particularly expressed that Juve were desperate to win that 95-96 European Cup Champions League because they deeply felt that the the one that they won at Heysel was was tainted. And they were right. The, the disgusting behaviour of Platini celebrating as if he'd scored the goal of of the century in a match where people had died and the players all knew that people had died had left Juve understandably uncomfortable and sad about that triumph and they wanted a they wanted an uplifting one, a special one and, and they were going to get it against Ajax and Luca lifted the trophy and it was his last game for Juve and off he went to Chelsea and at Chelsea our friendship continued and he trusted me and that's that's something that clearly now, all these years later, people in football broadcasting or journalism treasure still more highly because it's more difficult to get because our profession consistently makes bad choices about who comes into the profession, what they do, how reliable they are, how, how talented they are. And, and trust between people in, in my type of work and, and footballers or managers has been eroded badly and they know each other less well than they did in those days or still more when Luca was coming through at first in Cremonese. But Luca gave me his number. We could stay in contact. After press conferences when he became the manager, I could phone him on the bus and get the odd line here or there. And after a, a, a short but very successful career when, you know, his demands, his, his, his level of everything or nothing mentally fell out with players, particularly the lovely Gianfranco Zola. That's life, that was Luca. I arranged with him and with Athol still that I should I should be granted the first interview. Once he was sacked uh, by Colin Hutchinson, um, 
And Luca did the whole thing about Mr. Nice Guy and didn't name Colin, but that's who it was he was referring to. And a long interview which we, which took place in his beautiful flat, <laughs> mansion-style flat in Eaton Square in, in Chelsea. And it was the most luxurious place I'd ever been in. I, I tried to make sure I wasn't overwhelmed by what was going on. And at the end of the interview, we switched off the tape and look, I was like, I'm still boiling mad. I, I can't believe it. It's, it's left me with such a feeling of aggression and betrayal. And he said, I've had to take up kickboxing in the, in the, in the garage with a, with a big uh, boxing bag because uh, I'm so angry I can't fuck. It's a very strange way to express your, the way that you feel you've felt belittled or betrayed when you're sacked. And then over the years, we stayed in <clears throat> contact to the point at which um, Neil and Martin and I pitched up at Luca's new home, where we were greeted by his butler. The the elegance of the place, the elegance of the man, the the fun of the interview. <clears throat> Again, his his gentle, wry, sly, dry good humour. He could be, he, he could do you without without you knowing it. And there was always a twinkle as if, it, it was the grown-up version of the twinkle that Leo Messi's got in his eyes. I've often tried to capture that there seems to be a tableau, an amusing tableau playing behind Messi's eyes when you speak to him. And he's got these little dimples, Messi, that you're never quite sure why he's got this half smile on and, and it... It comes and goes during interviews. Luca often had it. Luca, Luca had this twinkle of mischief in his eyes. And it's like, sometimes it was like he was a spect... I mean, he was a serious, intelligent, entrepreneurial, ambitious man. But when he was with people that he liked, or maybe I just, maybe he found me amusing. <laughs> I don't want to build my part up. But there was always this kind of like... This guy's still odd, and what's he going to come out with next when Luke, when Luca looked at me? He became a a gentleman of London, which for an Italian, I think, is a big cultural change. I'm so happy that he found love and happiness relatively relatively late in life, and he's got two beautiful daughters. Um, I can't calculate what um, it must feel to his wife and daughters to lose this man. I... Like I've tried inadequately to explain, feel a little bit embarrassed or mawkish about feeling so sad, and I'm really only trying to share the. I, I, over and again, I saw I saw him at London events or at the Euros, or we'd exchange WhatsApps about his his fight with pancreatic cancer, and I I always said, listen, you don't need to reply. I'm just sending you love and good wishes. He always did reply, and and. Most recently, he was like, yeah, I, I remember the podcast interview very well. I enjoyed it. I'll recommend to the to the Italy press officer that Mancini joins the podcast. I do want to bear testimony to the fact that knowing Luca Vialli was, an, was enormous fun. I remember the me of 1995, and I was bursting with energy and inquisitiveness, and I genuinely wanted to learn and to know things, and maybe he, he clicked into that a little bit. And and also, just like Walter tried to show me the other side of Luca Vialli, so did Sven Joran Eriksson, who, who loved the Vialli-Mancini partnership and knows that he was chosen to be Sampdoria coach, not by President Mantovani, but by 
Valley and Mancini. Uh, a choice which led to Valley and Mancini and Mantovani and Sampdoria winning their first ever Serie A title. But also, I wasn't reporting that scene, so I can't do justice to the to the larks that the the Gemelli di Gol, the Gold Twins got up to. But what a partnership in life they had, Mancini and Viali, beyond the football pitch. Such friendship and everybody, I think, was emotional about them winning the Euros, the delayed Euros last year. But beyond that, it's incredible to me that a man this young has, has gone. We know cancer is a is cruel and is relentless. And I think everybody, including Luca, knew that when he was able to announce really good remission from pancreatic cancer there was never a moment when you can say that's it beaten one forever it, but for it to come back so quickly and so strongly and to and to kill him now if you want to have memories of him listen to the podcast we're reassuring of of Luca talking his voice the way he expressed himself the things he found funny the memories he had if, if you want to if you're really keen on Luca Viale go back to the Jody Morris interview, he, he roomed with Luca. And after all the, the talk about how hard he trained, making, he was never the sprinter, but he was always finishing first. The longer the training went on, the longer the doggy runs went on, the more that Luca would be in the leading pack or first. Make the first two, three runs for the defender, then the next run for yourself. And Jody telling us about being stunned when this physical behemoth would sit buck naked in their in their hotel room when they were on trips ordering burgers and smoking a cigarette while he waited for them Jody's anecdotes on Luca were funny a much loved man I'm here to try and convince you a very very special intelligent characterful kind man has gone today on January the 6th 2023 I found it terribly sad and that's why I've recorded this for you um, I don't know if it's interesting or of use, but it had to be done because Gianluca Viali was numero uno. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.